paper today that I'm going to give today. Thank you all for coming. Um, it's going to be, it's a paper um, which, which is a part of this new project which Inge mentioned, which actually is not going to begin until September. Um, uh, but uh, this, this project looks um, at the form of capitalism emerging in Mongolia's mineral economy, and it takes as a kind of starting point that even though there are predictions of GDP figures and different indexes and World Bank predictions and so on that Mongolia is ex going to experience great economic growth, actually what we need to do to understand what this economic growth actually means is to look at how the economy is shaped from the ground up through different kinds of local articulations. And the project will look at this through um, engagements with bank loans, with the housing market, with different religious economies, and with the mining industry itself. So today's paper is a kind of initial um, foray into some of these ideas. And um, I'm, I warn you at the beginning that it's a bit short, but this is only because I've decided to take out a large part of the paper which deals with... Um, uh, material from the Qing dynasty looking at the kind of historical background to some of these things, so you'll be relieved to hear that I've taken that out <laughs> for today's uh, presentation. And I hope that this will leave for some more time for discussion, um, particularly about the kind of explanation that I'm trying to put forward. So not so much about the material, maybe, but about the kind of approach that I'm trying to take here um, uh, to understand um, the economy. And um, particularly, I'm going to be looking at ideas about ownership today. Okay, so I've got, I'm going to read my paper, um, but I've got some images that will hopefully break up the talk a little bit. So I'm going to focus today on the way in which concepts of ownership um, are brought to bear on different claims to resources in Mongolia's mineral economy. Mongolia is one of the world's fastest growing economies for the fifth year in a row, due to a growing mining industry, which is both composed of large-scale mines uh, with foreign investors, as well as small-scale artisanal mining. Uh, the road to economic growth, however, is not straightforward, and challenges, particularly those surrounding claims to ownership and rights to resources, remain unresolved. In this kind of context, uh, where there's lots of predicted economic growth in the media and through economists and so on, but actually on the ground things are quite different, I ask how does a particular idea of ownership come to inform different kinds of legal, economic and political engagements in the face of changing claims to resources? <laughs> Now, the ownership um, model that I'm going to be focusing on is based on a hierarchical mode of respect that grants so-called, and this is a Mongolian translation, temporary possession of the landscape's resources to those who honour it. The Mongolian concept of temporary possession is based on a pastoral model of land ownership that pivots around herders having access to resources, such as water, pasture land, and so on, but not outright ownership. And this is something commonly referred to in legal terms as um, usufructory access. So here, access to resources is granted through a model of so-called custodianship that pivots around a relationship between a master and a recipient, or a patron, or a client, 
or a noble or a, a commoner. These articulations have different historical backgrounds to them. And in this um, configuration of ownership, in this model of ownership, the recipient is always in a position of debt to the master somehow. Um, and so in Mongolia, this kind of relationship of custodianship is replicated on lots of different levels and scales, um, including the people uh, of a household to the male head, who call the Edson, the owner, uh, commoners to the ruling uh, banner aristocrat, uh, people to the nation or state, and between humans and the spiritual owners, also called lords, Edson of the landscape. So the same term, Edson, lord, or uh, master is used on all of these different scales or all of these different levels. So recognizing the kind of pervasiveness of this relationship points to the idea of an animate landscape that's not just a resource to be mined, but has the capacity to turn around and interact with those who live on it. In this context, people are dependent on relations with human figures of authority, as well as with the invisible landmasters of particular places. And in relation to this conceptualization, David Sneath has commented that people seem to not hold land as they do other mundane possessions, but enter into relations with spiritual uh, powers of the locality to ensure different kinds of favorable conditions. And um, one of the articulations of this would be annual um, offerings to sacred stone cairns in the landscape which are a means by which different interest groups, such as miners, herders, politicians, traders, and so on, can all visibly enact their good relations with the spiritual stewards of the land. And offerings to the, at these places may be viewed as an expression of an ongoing relationship of debt and patronage. So I'm going to use this idea of custodianship um, as a kind of starting point or uh, provocation through which we can understand the way in which Mongolians are currently engaging with ideas about access to resources through uh, mineral extraction. And I'm going to suggest that this provides a really fruitful lens through which we can understand the particular way that capitalism is unfolding in this part of the world. Okay, so it's important to stress that this idea of custodianship is not to be viewed as a kind of residual or infantile mode of ownership. Its continued presence in what is a booming capitalist economy serves to disrupt our conceptual comfort zones of how capitalism, and especially capitalist property regimes, should appear. So this is to highlight that economic life often, if not always, includes a multiplicity of different forces that come to determine uh, the economy itself. And here I'm drawing very much on um, uh, Marisa de la Cadena's work of indigenous protest to mining of a sacred mountain in the Andes. And in her work, she invites us to consider opening up politics to the... Uni and here I'm quoting her, opening up politics to universes beyond the human, to allow the agency of sacred mountains into debates concerning access to resources. This, she argues, is not simply an appeal to a so-called indigenous mode of being or an archaic form that needs to be preserved, a kind of historical functionalism, nor is it a kind of misunderstanding of current capitalist economic life, a kind of malaise of modernity. Instead, uh, it allows us to challenge present political formations and categorizations. 
In fact, these kind of voices and articulations are often not allowed in politics because politics rests on the separation of nature and humanity, where only humans are the kind of dominant voice. Um, so the presence of what uh, De La Cadena calls earth beings in social protest invite us to slow down our reasoning, allowing for a rupture with the theory of politics. And she reflects, I quote her, Caring about these earth beings in place is, of course, not at odds with a desire for economic well-being. Indeed, pluriversal politics would, in fact, accept what we call nature as multiplicity and allow for conflicting views about that multiplicity into argumentative forms. So in relation to her call to open up and slow down our reasoning... I think we should keep in mind that the examples which I'm going to focus on today are not simply an indigenous response to neoliberal expropriations of minerals or a kind of magical um, response to modern inequalities. In Mongolia, there are no such clear distinctions between indigenous and non-indigenous responses, not least because herders have family members who mine and miners have family members who are herders, so that everyone is implicated in these practices in some way. Nor is it something that can simply be seen as the result of a new wave of a kind of global environmental consciousness, although some have termed it a kind of national environmentalism and these kind of groups, grassroots organizations, are emerging in Mongolia um, in the present day. What I want to suggest instead is that for most, the, this kind of work is simply an attempt to keep up the kind of multiple relations needed to gain access uh, to different kinds of resources and the means by which life can continue. So when resources are being fought and contested, economic life is not simply a series of transactions. Integral work goes into securing one's share and determining one's fate so the exchange in the market and in kind of wider what one might call cosmological life is one and the same in the production of modern economics. So it's because of this that when people question or even criticise um, capitalised modes of ownership and extraction in Mongolia... We should not view this, um, as is often recounted in the media, as a kind of resource nationalism. Okay? And this is really to critique that term and try and actually pick it apart a little bit. Resource nationalism often claimed as a kind of backward conservatism that plagues Mongolia's economic progress. Rather, we need to see these articulations as a challenge to the unravelling of prevalent political and economic formations, which, as we know from elsewhere, are never seamless, uh, despite the kind of economics <coughs> models that predict that they will be so. So taking this approach leads to an examination of who can claim rightful access to resources and on what grounds. And this is going to be explored through three different examples, each of which will evoke uh, this form of ownership based on custodianship in different ways. Attending to these examples, I argue, affords insight into the way in which economic growth associated with widespread mineral extraction is being experienced in Mongolia and points to the kind of subjects and relationships that are emerging out of this rapidly changing landscape of economic potential. Okay, before I move on to my examples, I have to give you um, some background from which these examples emerge. 
So I'm going to give you some background to understandings about different understandings about landscape in Mongolia more generally. In my own fieldwork, I came to understand what one might refer to as the nature of Mongolian nature through observing um, pastoral herders' everyday practices such as daily milk libations, as well as through more reflective conversations uh, with different people, such as my long-term friend Tunga Ekt, who lives in the district center. Now, one afternoon, while I was staying at her house um, and talking about the kind of frequency of forest fires in the region that summer, uh, she commented, as you know, there is the owner of the land and pasture. We must understand that these owners live in the mountains, hills, plants, and trees, and they all have their own breath. We have to treat nature in a way as if there is an owner who resides there which protects it. We shouldn't anger this owner. Now, I don't really know how to get the next image. Um, <laughs> so attending to this idea that nature has an owner or master is to kind of acknowledge an animate landscape that dominates um, particular kinds, that, that, yeah, that demands <coughs> particular kinds of engagement from the people who live on its surface. This is just like an archetype uh, photo, I think, of, in people's mind of what Mongolia should look like. <laughs> um, so, um, so commonly known in Mongolian as the lords or masters of the land, these agents bestow fortune and generosity to people who observe and honor them. This idea is obviously closely intertwined with shamanism, whereby landscapes are credited with various agents or masters, and it may be highlighted that these agents don't simply dwell in places, they actually constitute the kind of physicality of those places as well. So the animals, mountains, trees, grass, and so on, are kind of active subjects in a sense which have their own ways of being and affect the human beings uh, who live with them. In certain instances, specific types of relations are developed to manage and sometimes maximize the effects that can be gleaned through these kind of relationships. So an example of this would be women's daily uh, offerings of milk libations to the master of the landscape, uh, which is securing the water, pasture, and weather needed uh, to raise one's family and herds in that area. So just taking this um, as a kind of um, opening onto an understanding of this landscape, we see that people are always in a kind of hierarchical dependence to these landmasters. And not observing this relationship can lead to different kinds of reprimands. Um, the, like this woman, Tonga Ekshu, went on to explain, flooding, hailstorms, <coughs> fires, lightning, and so on. One should not throw anything into the rivers and streams, should not break trees, move stones, or dig in the ground. We need to protect the environment. The relationship people hold, then, with this spiritual entity is not one of simple exchange, but points to this kind of innate hierarchy. So one has to show a kind of deference and respect to the other with whom one's intimately connected and dependent upon. Indeed, even attending to such a relationship, the Mongolian landscape becomes a kind of interactive field of engagement rather than a passive uh, background setting on which resources can simply be extracted um, uh, or mined. Um, but the landscape also can turn around and interact with those who live on it. Now, the anthropologist David Sneath has noted that, some, that people who live in a landscape like this should not be viewed as the simple owners of, a, of the land. Instead, indigenous Mongolian notions of land ownership can be described as custodial, in that people have conditional rights to use territory and always within what he calls a wider socio-political framework. 
This socio-political framework have, of course, varied historically, but they've also uh, very much remained the same. Even at the end of the 17th century, when Mongolia came under the role, control of the Qing dynasty, imperial and princely jurisdiction over land was subject to the approval of yet higher authorities. And these higher authorities were the ever-present, yet always highly unelaborated masters or lords of the landscape. Uh, now, the term Edson, uh, meaning lord, is usually translated as owner, but also means lord, head, or master, and is used to denote asymmetrical relations entailing hierarchy and obligation at different levels or scales. So, for example, as I mentioned, the word master was, uh, is, was used for socialist uh, and pre-socialist rulers. So it's a political category. Uh, it's also used for the eldest male of a household, the head of a factory, um, or other large-scale enterprises. And in the past, it was also used for a name for the polity itself, so for the empire. Like the portion of milk offered to the landmasters in libations, uh, the first portion of hot food in a household, usually prepared once a day, is given to the el eldest male of a house, the Edson, the lord, ensuring that this kind of choicest portion is reserved for the master of a particular house. Now, offerings such as these draw attention to the idea that people are not the absolute owners but custodians of the land on which they live. And the dynamic of this relationship can be said to pivot around a model for more general ideas about power and authority. For example, um, the relationship of master and custodian has been taken up by various figures of authority at different historical junctures. Um, and this is some of the historical stuff that I've cut out about the Qing dynasty and different forms of ownership. But it illuminates a kind of fractal view of nested hierarchies across different scales. Now, in the sense that people don't own land uh, as, uh, in an outright sense, but have custodianship over particular resources, <coughs> this notion of custodianship differs from market-driven notions of ownership based on the idea of individual private property. While forms of land privatization are being made available in Mongolia, particularly in cities and district centers, uh, where, and I, I'm looking at this in, an, in another area that I'm researching at the moment, where different plots of land are given as collateral against bank loans, uh, pasture land, as you see here, is uh, still accessed under this usufructory model. As one herder put it, and this is a kind of quote from something it's from a long time ago, but he said, to sell the pasture land is wrong. It's difficult for us to understand. For example, this man and I live as neighbors, but our animals don't have computers in their heads. My animals will eat from his land, and his animals will eat from my land. The cattle will just eat whichever grass is better. If I owned the land, I'd have, to, I'd have the right to expel his animals, and then they will have no place to go. <laughs> So the current land law in Mongolia posits two radically different forms of land ownership for private companies, including mines, and for herders. And while obviously uh, this is based on a kind of customary practice, we'll see that it doesn't always put herders in a disadvantaged position when it comes to legal protection of their access to resources. And uh, different kinds of complications arise when herders are beginning to look for forms of compensation for lack of access to resources. Okay, so in this kind of general, uh, very 
brief description of different understandings of landscape and ownership in Mongolia, we've seen that the landscape is both a place where resources are accessed to grow one's animals and live, as well as a kind of interactive plane that demands particular kinds of engagement with the people who live there. So this is a model of ownership that's enshrined in different legal codes and extends to different scales or levels of protection and access. So now I'm going to turn to, the, to examine these three different ethnographic <coughs> examples that highlight the ways in which people claim access to resources in different regions of Mongolia. The first example is going to look at herders claiming access to pasture land in the face of environmental pollution by a mining company. The second involves informal gold miners claiming access to gold. And the third example examines claims for compensation when resources have been denied to herders through a local uh, NGO. And these examples uh, provide kind of snapshots or glimpses into new ways of engaging with the landscape and how they may give rise to different ways of mobilizing claims and capacities through this uh, model of ownership based on custodianship. So the first example I call Making Mountains Sacred. In his 2012 article, the Mongolian anthropologist Byam Bajav documents how environmental threats created by a mining program in rural Mongolia has prompted local herders to mobilize a range of different strategies to define themselves as the rightful custodians of a particular place. Over the period of six years, these local herders... Um, he documented they drew up different kinds of petitions, they occupied pasture land, they staged sit-ins on mining sites, uh, also engaged in outright physical conflict with the miners. Finally, in 2005, the herders formed a three-month-long barricade on the road which ran through a valley which was to be mined. And they filed a lawsuit against the mining company arguing that rivers in the area had dried up, uh, the mining company hadn't paid their water usage fees and they hadn't approved their environmental protection plan. Now, after much debate, their case was actually defeated at all three levels of the court and the case was ruled in favour of the mining company continuing. Now, there are various like, political reasons why that took place and Byambajov speculates that this may have been done to, due to the fact that the mining company uh, was promising a certain percentage of their income uh, to the local administration. Uh, the herders left their barricade and resumed their herding practices, but no one could deny the ongoing environmental impact of this mine in the region. This says, is my homeland going to become like this? By 2007, the herders turned to another means by which to regulate the mining activity. Bianbajev describes how in 2007, I'm quoting him, a local mountain in their region was approved as a state-worshipped mountain. So since the collapse of socialism in Mongolia in the 1990s, uh, eight mountains in Mongolia have been granted the status of state-worshipped or holy mountains. And every four years or so, the president of Mongolia takes part in a public ritual worship of these mountains uh, which ensure protection of the state and its people. 
So in this way, contemporary state rituals ensure a kind of sovereign power by harnessing the fortune of those mountains and prosperity for the country as a whole. Now, even though these worshipped mountains are not legally uh, outside those areas permitted for mining, granting uh, state protection of the mountain was regarded as a kind of novel way to protect the environment from mining operations. So even they'd, tr they'd tried all these different avenues um, and finally um, being able to grant uh, state protection of their mountain was considered a kind of ingenious way to prevent uh, mining taking place, especially at the source of these rivers and forests at the t in the mountains because these are exactly the places that needed protection from environmental degradation in order to preserve their pasture. And they're also, coincidentally, exactly those places that are deemed sacred according to the worship of local landmasters and their sacred uh, stone cairns. So what I think we might discern from this example is the way in which various concepts, frameworks, and ideas, what one might call the kind of cosmological infrastructure, comes to assist local people in their campaign to recognize some kind of right to access resources in the landscape in which they live. And while the situation is very complex and continues to be so with local and national power holders interwoven interests with mining, um, allies were sought and different kinds of networks established in order to mobilize uh, this kind of recognition of ownership. And protesters drew on a different range of legal, political, and cosmological frameworks for their action. Indeed, uh, Byambajav argues that these may be viewed as, and he, he says, different social and cultural resources and practices that encourage bonds and collaboration amongst these people. Oh, here's a picture of one of the worships of a state mountain with the different state officials. <coughs> So it should be clear that mining affects communities of people, namely herders, who don't own the land that they use. In the face of environmental degradation, they're often at a loss, uh, legal as well as political, as to how to retain access uh, to the land's resources. The small district described by Biambajav had little direct benefit from mineral extraction, and when their custodianship was being threatened, there was little basis on which they could actually claim ownership over any resources. With no private land ownership of pasture land, the herders had to present themselves as the long-term users of a place with rights to resources established over generations. Um, and this, this um, idea that they were long-term users um, was put forward by something called the local homeland councils in different kinds of legal courts. However, this strategy itself failed, and it was only when... Um, their, um, their ongoing relationship to the sacred uh, lords or masters of the place in which those resources were located were established um, that the mountain was granted a kind of state protection. Taking this perspective, they were considered to be kind of guardians of the sacred mountain and sought protection from the state who recognized it as such. I would further add that this uh, encounter between the mountain com mining company and local herders over claims to resources actually prompted a kind of new way of thinking about the landscape. After these various avenues of protest had failed to deter the miners, local people resorted to a third and possibly more powerful form of deterrent, 
namely registering their mountain, one of the eight sacred mountains of Mongolia. So it's important here to stress that this recognition was an outcome of previous disputes over access to resources. Okay? Local herders sought state protection of the mountain not so much um, as a last resort, but as an outcome of the mining company's activities based on the logic of private property ownership. <coughs> when the state granted uh, protection to the mountain, they publicly asserted their custodianship over the place and recognized its capacity uh, to generate prosperity for the nation as a whole. So here, in a sense, sovereign power was revealed as constituted by its capacity to generate uh, this prosperity for the country. Okay, so I turn now to my second example called New Landmasters for New Practices. So while the previous um, example uh, was kind of pitting herders against miners in different views of the landscape, among (laughs) informal gold miners, who you can see here, in in central Mongolia, these different ways of viewing the landscape and its resources are very much blurred. As mentioned, most people in Mongolia are dependent on capital generated through informal mining in some way, even if through very extended family networks. And someone who's looked at this kind of interdependence is an anthropologist called Meta Hai. And she's worked with both miners and herders uh, for several years. And she says, herders and miners, city dwellers and countrymen are all likely to be implicated in mining either directly or indirectly. So I'm going to draw on her ethnography here to see that the economy of custodianship and its corresponding master-custodian relationship, far from being excluded or ignored in mining activities, actually extends (coughs) into spheres of mining. Now, documenting the kind of interdependence of economies of herding and the informal gold mining in central Mongolia, Meta Hai has noted that from the late 1990s to the present day, Rumours circulate in the popular imagination that miners or informal miners have established new ways of honouring the masters of the landscape. So fearful whispers, she says, circulate that people are not sacrificing milk, as in those daily milk elevations I spoke to, spoke about earlier, the normal currency of choice, but are instead offering human blood sacrifices to appease the spirits of the landscape in mining areas. Miners are concerned with sacrificing to the spirits of the landscape, she elaborates, because uh, these informal gold miners are called ninjas in Mongolia. So ninjas repeatedly ignore taboos related to the land. Spirits not only with... When when they uh, ignore uh, taboos related to the land, spirits not only withhold fortune, but also wreak havoc by inflicting illnesses, accidents, and death. It's because of this that maintaining a good relationship with local uh, spirits is paramount to their mining success. So we've seen that the land demands particular kinds of engagement which are regarded as respectful, and digging in the ground is generally prohibited in Mongolia. So mining requires people to engage with the landscape in a very particular way, since people need to show respect in spite of this particular infraction. Normal offerings, uh, such as those carried out by pastoral herders, are considered not enough, because um, High explains the landmasters that the miners are held to encounter are of a kind of different order from those encountered by herders. 
Um, and the miners explain to Hai that these are the so-called black land masters who reside substantially lower under the ground and are, held to, and are held to have become visible only through the activities of gold mining. Rather than the spirits who reside on the land surface, then they don't reside. In, uh, they do not reside in the mountains, rivers, and trees, but in the dank and dark crevices eked out by the miners through their work deep underground. So exposing a kind of new cosmological realm and a whole other level of spirits through their work, the miners' activities point to what High calls a different engagement with spiritual existences. Instead of seeking to minimise and prevent harmful interactions with the landscape, as in the previous example, here we can see how miners are bargaining with the landmasters in different ways, asking for rewards and forgiveness of their infractions. And I have some examples of the way in which uh, miners themselves, for example, don't wear the gold that they mine, but sell it very quickly. They don't want to draw attention to the kind of ambiguous um, um, fortune that they're um, accumulating. And various accidents, road accidents. I've got an example of road accidents, which is, uh, the, is attributed as retribution from the um, land masters for taking too much gold from the landscape. Gold in itself is considered a kind of agentive property which is heavy and can act on you in different ways. Now, reflecting on this practice, um, the meta high documents of making blood sacrifices, we may ask if this is simply an all too familiar expression of what some anthropologists have termed an occult economy, where blood has become the currency that mediates new economic desires and hungry spirits. Is this simply a cosmological transformation triggered as an outcome of rapid political and economic change? So questioning the idea that these are simply new uh, magical means for material ends, a kind of instrumental functionalism, high charts the doubting complexity that pervades the miners' beliefs in these practices. Here, she says, people are likely to try their luck as harnessing wealth through a range of different practices simultaneously and they may see the efficacy of these along the same continuum, so that a sceptical engagement is the kind of default engagement. I think this example also allows us to see how the master-custodian relationship extends from herders into other spheres. Indeed, most herders also engage in some kind of mining and occasionally have to uh, trick or deceive the masters in different ways. So I'm not suggesting here that this model of ownership is some kind of structuring framework that remains the same while uh, practical activities differ. What I want to highlight is that the way in which accessing resources through a relationship of custodianship uh, extends into and determines different areas of social life. In doing so, models of ownership tended to, in one area, uh, kind of loop back to become the ground that determines economic life elsewhere. In this sense, we may speak of current mining activities, particularly this informal mining activities, as actually born out of ideas about custodianship, which provide more than simple, simply a kind of background elaboration. Okay, now I move on to my third example. It's called Compensation Claims. Now, more recently, environmental organizations are beginning to explore new means to raise awareness of the problems of mining in Mongolia. 
Um, on the morning of the 16th of September 2013, for example, 11 um, NGO organizations protested outside the government palace against proposed amendments to the so-called extraction law in river basins and forested areas. <laughs> a very long law. Name for a law. This law was approved in 2009 and prohibits mining operations at the headwaters of rivers, protected zones of water bodies and forested areas. While the amendments were being discussed in the parliamentary meeting, the protesters assembled outside aimed to raise awareness of the, de uh, of the destruction of mining uh, to the Mongolian countryside. Placards were raised around the government palace stating, around 40% of Mongolian territory should be protected by the state and 1,782 extraction permits should be terminated in accordance with the current extraction law in river basins and forested areas. 30 minutes into their protest, a gunshot was heard in the public park behind the government palace and the security division of the palace announced an emergency lockdown. Searching the surrounding park, police found several weapons and grenades. But the NGOs, the 11 NGOs, uh, claimed uh, that they had simply fired a blank shot and it was just being done to raise publicity. Now, some of these um, protesters have been uh, sentenced and are currently being imprisoned for up to 20 years in prison, okay, for incitement of terrorism. So this is green terror in, so in Mongolian green terror. This is one of the leaders of one of the NGO organizations. Now, while some of these organizations seek to promote what they call more responsible mining, others demand more radical reforms, which include the legal ban on mining in river basins. I mean, I should say that this battle over water is really pertinent in Mongolia because water resources are really scarce. <clears throat> now, this more radical claim um, to ban mining from these particular areas um, has meant that certain nationalist movements in Mongolia have begun to align themselves with these environmentalist agendas. So you get a particular merging of um, the fear of kind of nationalist anxieties, a fear of kind of uh, foreigners taking over Mongolia, and aligned with the fear of mining and particularly foreign miners taking over huge mining areas. So the fear of land becoming polluted through these unorthodox practices um, fears, uh, chimes with a kind of wider fear of incoming miners conducting intrusive behavior. And it's this kind of mix between the, the kind of nationalist and the environmentalist organizations, which not surprisingly perhaps um, gives rise to, um, means that these local environmental movements have become a kind of vehicle for sometimes uh, very contradictory hopes as well as fears. Um, here are some more of the um, grassroots NGO representatives who were involved in the protest. This is in the government, uh, outside the government building in Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia. So an example of this kind of contradict, what I call contradictory coexistence between these different interest groups is evidenced in the work of a particular grassroots environmental NGO concerned with the effects of a large foreign-owned mining company on local herders in southern Mongolia. This NGO is run by a Mongolian man based, um, who, who is based very close to the mine, and he, he, him and his organization act as an advisor to local herders 
whose pasture land and access to water is being affected by the diversion of their local river by the mine. They meet with the mine's representatives and monitor their compliance with so-called international environmental and human rights standards, and they seek to evaluate the impact of the, their activities uh, for the herders. However progressive, um, meeting these international standards doesn't always chime with local definitions and understanding of ownership. For example, it's difficult to imagine how this uh, NGO will negotiate ownership over something that's actually held by the herders as custodians. So when access to resources such as water are being challenged and affected, um, the way people... Uh, and, and affect the way people can earn their livelihood, on what grounds might these people actually seek so-called compensation? Um, indeed, what counts as adequate or appropriate compensation for loss of access to pasture when pasture itself is not owned by the people who claim that compensation? So the ideas, even the idea that herders should be compensated for lack of access to resources extracted by mining companies and that their right to pasture should be legalized as private ownership are all new and potentially transformative ways of perceiving uh, what are in fact these usufructory rights. So it remains to be seen how far this framework of claims of loss of livelihood can be mobilized by these local NGOs and who will actually come to benefit from these kind of claims. Okay, so now I come to my um, conclusion. It's called Pluriversal Economics. Reflecting on these very brief and somewhat different examples, I hope to have begun to show that tending to and honouring debts to forms of power and authority, whether human or non-human, is not simply an expression or remnant of some past economic logic. In present-day Mongolia, concerns with relations and forms of ownership are being articulated and remade as an outcome of pressing concerns over who can claim access to resources and on what grounds. Indeed, ways of attending to the landscape and conceiving of ownership are, in many ways, the ground from which current economic forms are being made to appear. As my first example showed, the landmasters are a crucial part of the way in which sovereign power is imagined, and they are conceived as an actual source of state power. Taking this view is to suggest that the experience of rapid economic change due to mining does not simply give rise to new cosmological concerns. That's a kind of Comoroffian approach. This is not simply a way in which people turn to new magical means for material ends. Instead, these concerns emerge out of a kind of creative overlap with different economies and drivers of change. This is a point which obviously has forcibly been made by Ting in her work on the changing forestry industry in Indonesia. So here, global interconnections lead to creative expressions, awkward connections and discontinuities of fear and hope, so that the form of capitalist expansion is not inevitable, it's not known. Rather, and as she elaborates for Indonesia, it's through the friction of local and global forms that new worlds come into being. Um, here's the Mongolian Minister of Finance who coined the term the wolf economy to talk about predicted economic growth in Mongolia. In saying this, I think it's also important to highlight that sometimes the friction, the local and the global, or however you want to cut it, eclipses one form for another. 
say that, for example, the idea of international standards purported by the mining company seems to come from a completely different uh, order that excludes the co-presence of any other understanding. However, in spite of these singularities, a plethora of connections or overlays are being made and remade in Mongolia between what one might call pre-modern relations and current environmentalist concerns, forms of capitalism and other forms of ownership, between landscapes conceived of as a resource and landscapes conceived of as agents of various kinds. Attending to these connections and disconnections is not something that can simply be explained as standing for uh, more fundamental economic needs, nor should it be seen as somehow an outcome of some closed um, cosmological understanding. Instead, this is a changing landscape that shapes the economic and political world that emerges from its very surface. So that in this kind of approach, I suggest that economic life may be seen as an expression or an outcome of more fundamental uh, realities. And this kind of approach, taking things kind of from the other way around, is something that's recently been highlighted um, by an anthropologist called Ellis in his work on the way in which shamanic cosmologies spread beyond the context of shamanism. So his ethnography is based from a workshop that makes shamanic costumes in Mongolia's capital. And he notes that, among other things, the inclusion of hundreds of material snakes on these costumes has increased in recent years. The tailors in the workshop attributed this to the fact that ancestral spirits are asking for this increased number of snakes because snakes are animals that crawl on the ground and are spiritually connected to the earth. And the increasing demand for snakes is a direct result of the huge increase of uh, construction and mining, both of which require kind of digging the ground. So in this example, we could argue that the changing designs on the shamanic cloak are simply an expression of kind of wider concerns with the rapidly changing economic context located outside. So here, kind of political and economic life gives rise to uh, changes in cosmologies. However, and I think he really skillfully shows, this is not simply a kind of one-way traffic. Political and economic life may also be seen as an expression or an outcome of more fundamental concerns, uh, realities concerned with shamans and their relationship with ancestral spirits. So that it's actually uh, shamanism which comes to shape the economy and political life itself. Now, I've presented the way in which a very particular concept of ownership comes to influence uh, different kinds of sacred, political, and environmental registers, determining the very material realities and resources of people's everyday lives. It's in this collaborative overlay um, that I suggest it's not simply an outcome of a kind of neoliberal uncertainty or a reaction to political and economic change. I would suggest that this is actually a new way of understanding the form that capitalism can and does take in this context. Including ideas about custodial relations of ownership in our understanding of modern-day economics might be to challenge um, homogenizing notions or models of what global capitalism should be. It is to turn, perhaps, away from more formal models towards a kind of wild, a wider field of engagement that recognizes um, more heterogeneous and creative articulations that actually give rise to and determine current economic realities. Thank you.